Welcome to the Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. With us today is Brian Kopp. Brian's had a long and distinguished career, that's an ongoing, I should say, but uh, career in the sports industry. Uh, looking forward to learning more about what you have done, what you are doing, what you're looking to do uh, on the podcast today. So, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, we start out the question where we start out with all of our guests and can you provide us a little bit more about your background and experience and how you got into your uh, role today? Sure. And uh, I appreciate the intro to me long and just means I'm getting old and all the, the <laughs> white hair just reminds me of that. But um, no, I, I actually started my career that I, I kind of say my career has two halves. The first half was had nothing to do with sports. So I started in finance. I did investment, investment banking and private equity um, was always a big sports fan growing up. I really n- never thought of it as a career. Uh, got my MBA from Kellogg um, and then got into corporate strategy and M&A roles for a few years. And didn't my first job in sports was 2008 when I was 32 years old and I joined Stats, um, which is now called Stats Perform. And at the time, I was in a pretty nebulous um, VP of strategy role, which meant, hey, help us do new interesting things. And a couple months after joining Stats, I uh, was put on a project. We were looking at camera-based player tracking systems that are everywhere now. Back in 2008, those didn't exist. And so we acquired a company from Israel called Sportview. And they had a system that was working in global soccer. And my job was to take it to other sports. So in my six years of Stats, I kind of built up a business where we were doing new technology uh, player tracking primarily in the NBA, but also analytics for NFL and college uh, teams. And then from stats went to Catapult Sports, which was a at the time a small Australian company, private company looking to grow in the U.S. market. I joined as their president of North America. And Catapult's a wearable GPS device. So again, in the tracking space, but instead of doing it optically through cameras, they were doing it through wearables. And again, this was in 2014 where wearables in the team space were relatively new. So I was able to help them introduce themselves to the U.S. market and grow that business. And then for the last seven years, I, I put up my own shingle, started what I call Stretch for Advisory, which is my own advisory firm, working with a number of, of, of different groups. Um, and then for the last two years, I helped form Ryan Sports Ventures, which is an extension, extension of the Ryan family doing investments in the sports space, primarily on the technology side, but a little bit on the sports property side too. So it's been, as you said, a little bit all over the place and I like distinguished, but long is certainly what it's been. But I think one of the places we want to start is actually that transition. A lot of our students are either entering the sports uh, industry for the first time as students or are making a career transition. You mentioned, you know, the sports industry, you are a interest or a fan of sports, which is very common. Obviously, that's a lot of reason or a core reason a lot of people get into sports. But what for you was exciting from a business perspective or why did you decide to make the leap from where you were in finance to sports? Yeah, what I what I realized pretty quickly is is there's a lot of people that have a passion for working in sports that don't come from another background. So a lot of people do start their career getting right into the sports space. They don't come from a more unique and broad background. And I was fortunate to learn a lot from a lot of different companies and industries before joining sports. So I think having a, a mix of different industries and different exposure to things really helped. And uh, what I saw in sports, obviously, there's the personal aspect 
aspect. I, you know, played several sports in high school, played small college basketball, was always a sports person. Um, so the chance to work in sports was exciting, but also the ability to be in a role where you're helping to solve problems, helping to look at new technology. That was really the appeal. I mean, I had been doing that in other industries. Um, right before sports, I was working in for-profit education. So I, I liked a lot of different industries before getting into sports, but really it was the challenge of how do you take a company at the time, Stats, which was known for one thing, which is paying people to watch sports games and collect data, and how do you integrate technology into that business? So to me, the challenge was more appealing to me than just being in sports. But as I tell people, it's not it's not bad when your personal interest is something you're doing day to day as well. Yeah, and I, I want to get into particularly what you're doing at Stats. But before that, you did mention about your athletic background. Also, that's a lot very common for our students and for the audiences, people coming from sports and playing sports either in high school or college. So is there anything in particular about your sports background that's translated into your career in sports that you thought was helpful, uh, you know, as building from an athlete into now being a professional working in sports? Well, I always, I always played team sports. You know, I did a couple individual sports, but most of my sports were team sports, uh, football, basketball, and um, being a part of a team, uh, you know, again, did that as Kellogg as well, where everything's in groups, like you get to learn and and deal with different perspectives and different people and learn very early on that everybody plays their role. But, it, you know, it's what I learned in being an athlete, especially in a smaller uh, school, it's not about having the best, best individual players. It's about how your team plays together. So I was fortunate when I was in college, my freshman year, we had, I think it was eight or nine freshmen on the varsity team. And we were six and 18. We were horrible. And two years later, we were 24 and five and went to the national tournament for the first time in, in, in nearly 20 years for the school. And so that wasn't because we had the best athletes. It was because we learned to work together as a team and everybody had their role. And it was a unique, um, neat group that came together and really learned how to work together. So to me, I really learned how working as a team and having everybody find their role. And it's not just about one or two people. It's about how everyone works together. And that obviously applies in, in all business, but especially in sports business. And then how did that, you know, you mentioned your first job, one, can you just explain, I think this might be a novel concept to a lot of our audience, like what do you mean by player tracking and player tracking data and sure. you know, why that was something that was interesting to stats to potentially acquire the company? Yeah. So at the time, again, 2008 this is when I start to, to age myself for your audience, uh, especially the students. But back in 2008, most of the st statistics that were available is what people could see and view with their eyes. And so box store score to statistics but then teams were hiring people to track things like deflections or things on defense if you think about it, at the time what were defensive stats steals and blocks those are outcomes that's not what led to that point um and a lot of times as someone who gets that you might get a block on a play where there was really bad defense right before that so they were trying to figure out how to quantify more things and what they did is they would hire people to watch their own games but they couldn't afford to hire people to watch every single game because you don't just want it on your players. You want it on all the other players and do statistics. So they were looking for new ways of collecting data. What we saw with this player tracking is what it was is they were a lot of these companies came out of Israel. A lot of Israeli defense forces, they created what they call uh, their missile shield um, to, to basically protect Israel from from missile attack. And they used tracking technology, optical tracking, it's called, where you're using uh, cameras and then writing algorithms to have those cameras track objects. 
um, Sportview came out of that initial thesis and they wanted to do it for sport. And so they were doing it in the sport of soccer where they would put cameras in a soccer venue focused on the pitch. And the nice thing with soccer is very spread out. You're not supposed to cluster together. And so they would identify the players. They would um, track where the players are and also the ball. And they would basically assign X, Y, and for the ball, a Z coordinate 15 times a second. So the system itself would spit out this long list of basically an identifier of the player and then X, Y, and Z in a timestamp. And it would just do that 15 times a second. And so what we saw was a unique way to not only partner with something like that, but own it at stats and introduce that to new sports as a next layer of statistics that not only could we provide, but we could own. And so the idea was, let's buy this technology early on. And then I'm, I'm not kidding that, you know, we had a soccer system and basically they said, hey, new guy, figure out how we should take this to other sports. And actually the first sport that we, I basically met with all, and this is after I've been in the job for a couple months, had never worked in sports, didn't know anybody. And here I am calling in all the sports leagues, the stats had relationships with and said, hey, we have this new technology. Maybe we can make it work for you. And the, the, they all were interested, but the league that said yes was the NFL. And so we ended up, you know, as much as it was an interesting uh, at the time, but we ended up, I ended up spending, me and a team spending basically two seasons on the roof of Lambeau Field up in Green Bay, trying to use at the time 24 cameras to track football players, uh, which is very hard. And uh, we made a lot of progress um, and that led to other things that, that applied to basketball. But, you know, player tracking is everywhere now, whether it's wearables, whether it's cameras, it's great to see how far the technology has come. I think every single league ad adapts some sort form of tracking. Back then, it just didn't exist. And um, it's something that was new to a lot of groups. And, you know, to your question about why did people care, it's because they were looking for an edge and that edge came from let me get access to data that's never existed before. And how do we then turn that into statistics that we could use for player development? And more increasingly, you're seeing it for fan engagement and media. And it's great to see Amazon have a Thursday night broadcast with a next-gen stats feed where you can see all this data. We were theoretically talking about that back in 2009, 2010. So it's great to see it finally hitting the field in the broadcast today. Yeah, can you talk about that? You know, kind of we have the beginning and almost at the end, but some more in the middle. And I know you and I talked about this a little bit uh, previously, but like what were those conversations like when you were having talking to people about something that really didn't exist before? And how did you communicate about data? And it seems like there's so much of it. Like, what do I do with it? So how did you kind of navigate that process first with the NFL and then through the other teams and leagues that you worked with? Yeah, the, the NFL got it. I mean, I think they wanted it and they were exploring both cameras and they eventually went with a chip based system, which is what they're using today. So we were talking to the league and at the NFL, you're either working with the league or you're working with nobody. Like you know, we had some teams say, hey, we'd like to do this. But the NFL said, no, you're either doing it for everybody or you're not allowed to work for an individual team. The NBA is different. We talked to the league early on um, and they were interested. But again, the technology it didn't exist for basketball, it existed for soccer. So I was saying, hey, we think we can make this work here, but we hadn't built it yet. So what I give the NBA credit for is they allowed us to go to individual teams. So I had to call on teams and say, hey, I have this potential technology that could work. Let me put cameras in your, your arena and track some players. And so that first year, we got six teams to say yes. The first team to say yes, you know, sight unseen with the Mavericks. And I traveled down to Dallas and met with Mark Cuban. And the first thing Mark said to me is, how much would it cost for you to do this just for us? And I had to explain to him, like, that's not how this works. Like, you want to get everybody on it. Therefore, you get all the data. Because at the time, all I could offer was your home 
games. This wasn't portable. And so I had to put cameras in your home arena. I could give you 41 home games and that's it. And so what I did is I went to all the other teams and said, hey, if you guys all opt in, why don't you share data with each other? So at least you, those six, yes, you're giving up your 41 games, but you're getting back 246 games or whatever the math was from the other the other teams. And so, you know, it kind of started this, this um, I, I call those early teams as they were, they were customers, but they were also partners because they viewed this not just for what I'm doing this year, but if this could, could get on and eventually gain some steam, which it did, they'd be there early on to figure out your second part of your question is what do I do with this? Because again, we couldn't just give them a feed of XYZ coordinates and say, here you go, figure it out. So we had to do the actual hard work of, we had people watching video to be able to determine. So I always give this example, the assist, the definition of assist is a pass that led to a basket. That could mean a lot, a lot of things. And I know there's been studies over the past that says certain home scorekeepers, you know, certain players average more assists on home versus when they're on the road. Like, and there's been a lot of flexibility when you're dealing with data, you have to write a, an equation to define movements like assist or movements like drive to the basket or pick and roll things that you can see it with your eyes but how do you define it when you're talking to machines and data and again this was early days where there's not as much advancements in machine learning so we had to do a lot of it a bit more manually and so we actually had to go through and define through data what an assist was and then once we did that we were able to define things like a potential assist so wouldn't you like to know i made a perfect pass to a guy who missed a layup in the traditional box score, that isn't captured. But in, in our box score, we could call that a potential assist. Like, you know, he should have made that basket or could have made that basket. Or um, things like a secondary or a hockey assist. Who's the guy who made the pass that led to an assist? So it, it was an interesting process because we had to define some of the very basic things around the game that had never been defined before. And then we went to the next level. We started looking at things like... Um, when I would talk to coaches, I, I, I always tell the story. We, we also talked to some college programs and Rick Patino was coaching at Louisville and, you know, he, we we're talking about this and again, Rick's not known to be a super stat guy. And so he, I could tell he was kind of following along, but he wasn't really like digging in. And he, and I, I always ask like, what are some things that you've always wanted to know and quantify that you can't? And he started explaining that when he, he coaches defense, he wants to keep the ball out of the paint. That's really important to him. And so I said, what if I could give you a report that shows you how many on each possession, whether or not the ball got into the paint, if it did, did they shoot or did they pass it out? And if they shot, did they make the basket? And his eyes got all big. He's like, you could do that. Now at the time that report didn't exist. So I had to go back and tell the team create this, but I knew it was possible because I knew the data was tracking movement and we could say when the ball and got into the paint. So we ended up creating a report that he looked at after every game that showed how many times do we allow the ball into the paint? And then when, when that did happen, did they shoot it? Did they score? Did they kick it out? What happens next? And again, you could pay someone to track that manually. We were doing that all automated and then giving them a report. And so sometimes it was just one example like that. And that was the exciting part at the time is when you're collecting new data and things that have never existed, those conversations around, what do I do with this? Um, you can do a lot with it. But what I learned very early on is rather than me trying to pitch it to them, ask them questions. Like, what are you looking for? What have you been curious about? What is important to you? Because the fact is you could probably figure out how to do it with this data. Yeah, I, I want to get back to something, but I actually want to specifically follow up on that question. What, 
were people, I guess, prepared when you asked them, like, what did you want to track? I mean, some of it is like, if it's something that's novel and they hadn't really thought about it, or more people like Rick Pitino or more people are like, I, I don't even know, like, where I should start from. It was kind of all over the place. There were people like, um, you know, Sam Hinkie was at the Philadelphia 76ers and he was leading this charge. He was one of the first people I talked to about this. He was very supportive because he knew that there was going to be some cool stuff they could do with it. Cause there were some people that were out in front of it. So the teams that you would expect, our original teams were the Houston Rockets, the San Antonio Spurs, the Golden State Warriors, because right after Joe Lacob bought the team and they brought in a lot of new people, the Boston Celtics, the teams that are known to be more analytical, they I didn't even really have to have to pitch them on what this could be. So they they just wanted they knew they needed to start collecting it because they knew it would grow in value over time. There were other teams that that I don't know if they ever really got it, to be honest. Um so the way it progressed is we we worked at individual teams for a while, and I think we, we went from six to ten to fifteen, you know, year by year. And that fourth year, we were going to get to like twenty five, and we ended up doing a deal with the NBA to roll it out league wide. But I kid you not, right before we did that deal with the league, I was working on a plan that the, those last four or five teams, I was trying to figure out because you can imagine the value of the data once you com- you can get it at every venue, it just goes up you know, exponentially, because then you have every single game. I was actually working on a plan of how much would I have to pay them just so I could put cameras in their arena. So it wasn't like, so that's where it were. We had people that got it early on. And then we had people that I might have to pay and convince them just to let me do it. So you, it's a pretty broad spectrum of people that I would say were prepared for it. Now, again, I think you progress, you know, 10, 12 years later, and that's, that's really, taken hold. And I think more people are accepting and and understanding of the technology, but back then it was pretty wide range. Yeah. And there's again, another follow-up question from that, but I want to go back to my original follow-up question, which was, this is, you mentioned how you are entrepreneurial. You seems like you were entrepreneurial. How much of that did you seek out in stats and how much did you see this as like an uh, an opportunity to build a business, build a product, build relationships? Is that something like you, I guess, sought out or when you came to the sports industry, or is that something that just kind of happened while you were there? Because this was the opportunity. Yeah, I'd say it kind of happened because of the opportunity. When I joined Stats, I knew it was the company that had been around for a while and was looking into new new things. I had no idea it would be in the tracking space. So, you know, that kind of came along. My job was to do look for new creative ways for the company to grow. And this became one of the biggest ones. Um, but but I think once I started doing that is when, you know, I, I'd say that's what started my entrepreneurial journey. And since then, I've worked with a lot of smaller startup companies because I I understand what it's like to take an idea and have to try to figure out everything about turning it into a company. Um, you know, first turning it into a product, but then also turning it into a business and a company. Because uh, in those early days, we were even determining how many cameras, where would they go? Like, how would we deal with a bunch of areas? You know, we had challenges like uh, uh, right around the time we introduced SportView is around the time up until then courts were the same, you know, they didn't really change a lot. And then all of a sudden, you know, they started putting in all these colors and, and, you know, the, they would put Brown in the middle. And when you're trying to track a Brown basketball, that can be difficult. And um, I'll never forget because working with the Israeli developers were great. Um, they just have a very different approach and they, they, their approach is whatever it needs to make this technology work. So I remember talking to the head of the development and he said, we were working with the Celtics at the time. 
And he said, you know, I'm going to call the Celtics because their court is too dark and we need them to lighten it. And I'm going to see if they can change the court. And I was like, no, they're not going to change the parquet in the Boston Garden because it'll help with tracking. But um, so we had to work through challenges like that. But I think the, the entrepreneurial side of it kind of came out of the opportunity. But once I started doing that, I realized that's really what what drove me. This kind of leads into, you know, obviously your next uh, job, which is a catapult. But um, one thing I did want to cover as a, as a transition is player tracking te- technology and the data that does come from that, which is, you know, could be considered sensitive data, both from a competitive perspective, but also a player, an agent, the league, media partners. So, you know, this is kind of the start of privacy maybe privacy issues or privacy data and data collection. How did you guys navigate that? And, and did you see that as a potential issue um, at stats with the sport view data? Yeah. I mean, obviously the, the biggest thing was a trust with our teams. So again, when you're talking about, you know, when we had to do this data sharing amongst the teams, I had to make sure that that, that was understood and everyone, you know, they had a lot of faith in us that we were going to do it the right way. And, and as I told them very early on, if I, if I screw you over, you're never going to work with me again. So, and there's only 30 of them. So I knew that we had to take care of those relationships. Um, uh, it wasn't an issue on the player side because the player didn't have to do anything. Um, the cameras were in the arena. They were tracking, you know, again, just like someone could go and collect points of rebounds and assists. Like there wasn't an issue there. Um, what, that's part of why we did a league-wide deal with the NBAs because we wanted to remove that question as to whether or not it was fair and what we should be doing. And I know they looped in the the players' union, so the players were aware of what was going on. Obviously, that became a much bigger issue when I went to Catapult when you're talking about a wearable that you're wearing on a player. So I would say early on, I saw that as a potential um, challenge. It was just very early in the equation. A lot of times, players didn't know this was happening. Um I, I never felt good about that. To me, I feel like the players should have been involved in the conversation, known about it, have access to it, make their own decisions around it. I think that's starting to happen now. But back then, a decade ago, it was still early to a lot of that stuff. Um, now, again, transitioning to Catapult, when you're asking an athlete to put a wearable on, that's very different. But even in those early days, I think we left it up to the team because the teams would, would were our client. They're the one paying for the system. And they would ask a player to to wear this. And, you know, to me, the best teams would tell the player, hey, here's why we're doing this. Here's the output. Here's, here's why we're helping you. But some teams wouldn't. They'd say, wear this. And the players wouldn't even ever see the output. I never thought that was right. I feel like having them part of the conversation always felt like the right way to do it. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's a good point. And before we get into that in more detail, can you just explain what exactly Catapult is and why you decided sure. to um, uh, stats, what is now stats performed to catapult. Yeah. So really enjoy what I was doing at stats, um, made, you know, once we did the NBA league deal, we had everybody reaching out to us. So hockey wanted to do something. Um, you know, a lot of other sports want to do stuff. And what we found is it's very hard. We, we did a, we did a hockey demo in Washington because at the time the wizards and the capitals played in the same arena. We figured let's just turn the cameras on. And what we found was when you're dealing with the ice and the glare off the ice and the puck and the, you know, the sides of the rink, like very different system. We would have to move the cameras around. We'd have to do more filtering. We'd have to do a lot of other things. So it was basically building a whole new system. And it was very frustrating. And teams would say, well, what if I play in a neutral location? What if I'm on the road? What if I want to do this in practice? And it's, it became very, 
very hard for at the time, I think it's gotten better, but at the time to install cameras everywhere you go and track in all the situations. So when I was still at Stats, I started looking at wearables because that was becoming um, and emerging. And that's when I first met Catapult. I was still working at Stats. I, I was working with them as a potential partner. And they're the ones that th threw out the idea of, hey, you know, why don't you come work for us? And um, at the time, I wasn't looking to, to leave Stats. Um, but then they sold the company to a private equity firm. And it kind of felt like a, a natural point for me to, to move on. And Catapult at the time was an Australian company. What they do is a wearable GPS device. Um, they now do an indoor tracking as well. But at the time, it's a, a GPS device that you know was about the size of an iPhone back then. And players would wear it between their shoulder blades, mainly because that's how you get the best GPS signal. It started in Aussie Rules football, expanded to global soccer, and they were starting to get some interest in the U.S. market. So when I joined them, they had a couple employees, but it was to establish the U.S. business and really grow it. And, um, you know, the first thing we did was given my relationship with the NBA, I think at the time they had two or three NBA teams. And within a few years, we had 25 because a lot of teams were looking for ways to track practice. And the difference between the cameras and the wearables at the time is cameras were focused on game output, game data, and the wearables were focused on physical output. So how hard did you work, um, recovering from injury, different things. So you're talking more sports science than you are data collection. I think those two things have merged together over the last few years, which I, which was always what I thought the future would be. But the Catapult at the time was a wearable device that you had to put on a player, you had to charge it every day. And a lot of the output was more around, are you doing enough work in practice? Are you working too hard? How are you recovering from an injury? How do we make sure that you're doing the right movements in practice and in games? And where was Catapult on kind of its product uh, roadmap at that point? It sounded like SportView was, particularly in the United States, was a little more in its infancy, where Catapult was maybe a little bit further along. Um, the reason I ask is that was it easier to do Catapult across, A, just to scale it up more generally, but B, to, to work across multiple sports given the specific use cases and given where the technology was, or was there still a lot of customization done at that point? No, the, the data capture itself didn't need to be customized too much. Um, it was primarily an outdoor tracking system because of GPS. When we worked with NBA teams, it was more about because there's an accelerometer and a gyroscope, you could also get movement. So how well do you move to your right versus your left? You weren't getting location at the time. So it was less about that. It was definitely easier to take to other sports because the system itself, the device doesn't know what sport you're playing. How you then translate that output is what makes it more sports specific. So there was some work we had to do there, but it was a much easier transition at the time. You know, when I joined Cat, by the time we built out the catapult team, we were working with pro teams, but also college. We even started to dip into high school, and the main sports were were football, basketball, baseball, or uh, sorry, football, soccer, and 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 basketball. But then we started looking at baseball and tennis, and really any any sport where you're doing. Um, movement and you want to track that and make sure that you have a baseline that you could track against. And the technology itself was easy to use in different sports. You just had to create reports and output that made it you know, usable for each of those sports. So there was some work to do, but it wasn't nearly, it's not like we had to create a new wearable for each individual sport. And what, how did the conversation change at that point around quantitative analysis, particularly um, whether on field, on court quantitative analysis, you know, you said with sport view, it was pretty nascent. People didn't even, you know, necessarily know what was happening until now you're at Catapult. It seems like at least there had been maybe some steps forward from that perspective. What were the conversations like once you got to Catapult? 
Yeah, it was, it, it kind of, again, differed by sport, but you know, I'll, I'll stick with with basketball since I was working with them at Stats and SportView. When we first introduced SportView, I'd say a couple, most of the analysts that work for NBA teams were still what I'd call spreadsheet analysts. So people that were working in Excel, working with play-by-play data, they didn't have programmers, they didn't have um, things that were doing deep analysis. Once you introduce something like SportView, everyone had to start to add more capability. So you look today, and teams have a lot of professional teams have a whole analytics group and they have programmers and they have you know database management and they have analysts they have all kinds of people none of that existed so i think in the in the 6 years i was at stats that started to take off in the nba to the point that they started to have more staff to handle more data um, nfl teams were still slow to it because they were still working off of traditional data and some of the other sports were a little slow to it as well um, what's funny about it is baseball probably was most advanced because they kind of were the sabermetrics advanced stats, but they didn't have any sort of wearable or any, any tracking data. Again, that's changed since then. So I think it was starting to adapt when, by the time we introduced catapult, a lot of the, to the U S market, a lot of the pro teams were at least open to that, but a lot of the NFL teams still had to build that staff and make sense of it. They were also starting to hire more and more sports scientists. Like that's a role that is a lot of teams now back a decade ago it didn't always exist a high performance director or a sports scientist a lot of times they just threw it out on the strength coach and said hey you figure this out and so in the early days we're dealing with strength coaches who are used to just you know being in the weight room and helping guys recover or to build strength and suddenly they had to, to adapt and create different capabilities so the organizations had to catch up as well which was interesting to see from the from a little bit the outside to see how that all de- developed and it's great to see how far it's come because now the best teams have pretty significant staff because they're not only collecting stuff, but they're also figuring out how do we put it into place. And one other question that happened across both Catapult and um, Stats, it seems like you had to work, A, with international teams, but particularly with Catapult, an international-based you know, executive leadership team. You talk about what it was like to kind of work with and across international teams and what are the challenges uh, and opportunities that you saw by having a more international focus. Yeah, there were there were many challenges. One being just time difference. Uh, Catapult uh, was based in Melbourne, Australia. They still are. It's much very hard to find. There's no most of the year there is zero business hour overlap between the two countries. So working in off hours is a requirement. Um, it's also in the early days we had to explain a lot of the specifics about each individual sport. So. In the, in the Australian football, which is what this technology started at, the maximum number of players on a team are 44. You go to the NFL, you could have over 100 players in practice. So they actually had to make some changes to the system to handle that many players at once because that's not something that had to do before. So there were a lot of changes to the product that had to be made to adapt to U.S. sport. And sometimes it was challenging just to explain the nuances of what some of the sports go through. So the one of the challenges I had was the initial device was, as I said, pretty big, probably about the size of this, a little bit bigger than this mouse. And most of it was the GPS antenna. Well, if you're an NBA team, you're not using it for that. So they would always say, why can't you make it smaller? Can't we make this smaller and put it around the waistband as opposed to having to wear you know, these, what looked like a sports bra and put it between your shoulder blades. And it took us several years to finally get to a point where you could do that. So now in the NBA, you don't, I used to take pride that you could see a little lump behind their, their back and like, Oh, look, they're wearing catapult. Now you can't see it, but that's progress of the technology, right? So 
um, that was part of the challenge because, you know, as much as a lot of sport can be viewed as global, there's a number of sports that are very regional. You know, there is no other, you know, people play basketball everywhere, but there's only one NBA. They don't really play, you know, American football outside of the U.S. So, you know, being sports specific sometimes was challenging, but it also helped that we had clients all over the world. So when we're dealing with soccer teams in the U.S., we could point to English Premier League clubs and other international clubs we were looking for. So there were benefits, but there were certainly challenges to to making a global company work within a very regional sport specific market. And then as you decided, you know, obviously you helped to have success at Catapult. Um, then you decided, as you mentioned, kind of put up your own shingle. What was the decision point or why did you decide to kind of move from Catapult to doing your own kind of venture and being kind of your own working kind of in your own consulting advisory practice? Yeah, so that was it was 2017, and really at the time was a. It felt like there was a lot of progress in sports technology. Like the, again, when I first started in this business, there wasn't a category called sports technology. That was a that was a new thing. So by the time 2017 rolled around, sports technology was growing in adoption across you know all sports and across the world. But there was also growing um, number of investors getting into the space. So a lot of startups, a lot of companies. Um, coming to market and a lot more dollars that looked like it was going to be spent. So to be honest, what I started with was, well, let me just advise some companies until I find a real job. And uh, and I realized pretty quickly how many companies were out there and how many of them had very interesting ideas and they didn't know how to bring it to market. Or uh, I found a niche in international companies that really wanted to tap into the U.S. market, which is what I had done at both Stats with Sportview and at Catapult um, with their Australian company. So um, what I found was there were a lot of companies that needed help in trying to figure out how to make their way in the world. And also investors who were interested in the space but didn't really have a background and, and an understanding of it as well. So ended up advising some small teams, uh, worked with an investment firm that was working with a couple of different companies. And and like I said, it's uh, at the time, as much as you can look back now and say, oh, that made total sense. At the time, I was like, well, let me just do that to stay busy until I get a real job. And then it turned into you know more than a job and really hasn't, hasn't backed off. Yeah. Can you talk more about some of the, I mean, you mentioned with the Ryan Sports, but uh, can you talk about some more of the funds and companies that you worked with? Because it's really interesting, kind of a portfolio of companies and funds that you've been uh, associated with. Um, and I think it'd be good just to hear the context of kind of the different things that you were looking at, because that's kind of a good overview of kind of the sports tech and venture and investment space. Too. Sure. Yeah. So for the first year, I was doing my own thing, working with a number of different startups. And then got an interest to a group of Phoenix Sports Partners, who I know you were you were working with as well. Um, and they were looking at investing, but also helping to operate a number of companies. I originally started working with them because they found a vision tracking company called Visual Edge, and they wanted me to run that. So I agreed to be CEO of that company. And then six months later, they asked me to step into more of a, a management and investment um, uh, at the Phoenix Sports Partners level. So started doing that with them. And um, it was interesting because there were a lot of different companies that, that were at a small scale that were looking to take that next step up. So those were the companies we were looking at is, I have an interesting idea, maybe I have some initial traction, but how do I grow that? How do I invest in the right areas? How do I get to the next level? Um, so that was a good chunk of it. But then I also started working with some bigger companies um, that were looking at either data or software or analytics type of businesses. So I still do work with Riddell. I've been working with them for almost seven years. So they're a football helmet company, but they were working on a smart helmet. 
where essentially they put a sensor inside the helmet and they collect impact data. And they've been doing it for a while, but they needed help on how do we turn this into a business? And so help them to form a group that we call Inside Analytics, where basically they're taking all that information, but also offering a subscription reporting package back to teams. So again, you think about a sport like football and people are always worried about impacts and and how do you um, manage that, but also doing things like technique. How do you know if you're tackling in the right way, if you're getting a bunch of impacts on the top of your head? Um, so turning that into an analytics business, it was something where Riddell had, an, had a background in building hard goods and helmets, but they didn't have a strong background in data and analytics. And so that's where I, I was help, able to serve that role. Uh, another company I work with is Wilson, um, obviously a very known brand. They have a business that uh, does connected balls. So putting a chip inside the ball, um, again, they know how to create footballs. They know how to put the chip inside the ball. How do you then create that into services and products that you offer to teams or to media or anybody else? So those are the areas where I would be able to work within a big company, but with a small project that was related to data or analytics. And, you know, I, there's a few more questions we're going to ask as we kind of get towards the end. But the one sure. question I get asked a lot, and I think it's helpful to have your perspective, is um, there are... Uh, a lot of our students who are interested in starting their own venture and you're, you know, you've seen it both as an advisor and an investor. And we should talk about more about what you're doing, particularly with Brian sports ventures, but from your perspective, having worked with those companies and now worked with kind of independent companies for or companies that are looking to, you know, in the startup phase or in the growth phase, what are you seeing as like consistent themes of challenges that they're running into or things you would recommend that people consider or think about as they're launching or starting or commercializing businesses? I think we see, I see a lot of companies that um, create something interesting and novel um, and they're trying to find, it's almost like a technology is looking for a problem to solve. So, you know, thinking very early on about what is the problem you're solving? What is that pain point? And is it enough that people need it, want it, and will pay for it over time? Um, and so we see a lot of, I love the passion and energy of young founders that are kind of running into the fray with ideas and and a lot of them are creating some amazing things a lot of my role and again goes back to the lengthy career and being a little bit older is i tell people i love people that will run through walls my job is to tell them which wall is made out of concrete and not to worry about versus which are the ones that are worth uh, putting the effort on but i think that it's it's that passion to change things and do things that are disruptive i don't think disruptive things need to be widely disruptive. A lot of times when you're, again, going back to the data thing, a lot of times people look at this new data and say, oh, you're here to, to completely tell me how to do things differently. Like, no, a lot of this is to get one, two, 3% better because an elite sport, that's pretty significant. Or even as developing as a youth athlete, that can be pretty significant over time. So that's not the most sexy thing in the world, but just getting a couple percentage points better sometimes makes all the difference. So I think it's really focusing on what is it that you have that's differentiated, that that serves a need, and is that need a big enough market? Because I see a lot of things where it's very specific to one niche market, and that's fine, and that could be a little product. That's not a scalable business. A business needs to be something that's, that t- tackles a big enough market and, and enough of a pain point that you'll be able to build a business around. Yeah, and then speaking of bigger markets, that's not exclusively, but obviously more of what Ryan Ventures focuses on potentially larger scale opportunities or, um, mm-hmm. you know, opportunities maybe a little bit beyond the the startup growth phase. So can you talk hey, a little bit more about how you got to Ryan Ventures and what Ryan Ventures sure. is and what you're focused on from an investment thesis perspective? Sure, sure. So 
I, so when I was at Phoenix Sports Partners is when I first met Rob Ryan. So Rob is uh, part of the Ryan family, a big Chicago family, a big Northwestern family. Um, you know, the, I'll be at the Welsh Ryan Arena tomorrow night to watch uh, the Northwestern Iowa women's game. Um, and they're building a new Ryan field. So obviously I knew of the name, met Rob because he was an investor in Phoenix Sports Partners. And we stayed in touch. And the Ryans have built up a portfolio of sports investments. They've been a minority shareholder of the Chicago Bears for a long time. They're investing in some sports technology funds. And Rob was always interested in getting more involved in the sports space for his family. It's how he got involved with Phoenix. And when I was looking to leave Phoenix Sports Partners, I, I kind of let Rob know that. And he and I had been talking about different projects here and there. And we have a third partner, Paul Horrigan, who he and Rob were talking about the same. So around that time, the three of us got together and said, well, hey, maybe we can work on some projects together. And what that turned into was forming Ryan Sports Ventures, which is not a fund, but it's an extension of the Ryan family. And what we do is we look for investments primarily in sports technology, uh, but but also in sports media and sports properties. And so the idea would be have a portfolio of technology companies that we can bring to media and property companies and vice versa. So um, our one property investment was in AFC Bournemouth, which is in the English Premier League. And part of the thesis there is we have technologies that might be able to help the club, whether their first club or their academy or some of the other, they have a multi-club structure with a couple other investments. So Ryan Sports Ventures was focused as a way to and who the family is and what they bring to the table. And then obviously our myself and my partner, Paul, our background in the sports space and how we can we can bring that to bear on behalf of the family by making investments. And the two final questions, um, we have spent a lot of time, which I very much appreciate talking about data, quantitative analysis, technology. But one of the things I think you're extremely good at, at least from my perspective, is building relationships. And, you know, obviously you can have the base from our, or my perspective, you can have great technology and data, but sports at times is a relationship, uh, relationship driven business. So what do you, when you're building your network, particularly either at where you are now or where you were earlier in your career, what have you found to be like important lessons in terms of relationship building and building sure. a strong network? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, as you said, it's important in all industries, but especially in sports. I mean, it's, sports is a relatively small business um, from a people standpoint, and and there's a lot of connectivity. I found that early on of uh, a lot of connectivity between different groups. Um, I think what I learned over time is relationships are definitely a, a two-way street. I know it's a very obvious statement, but there's a lot of times where I'll, I'll be trying to see if I can help someone or make a connection to them. And it has, and there's no benefit to me directly. Like it's not, it's not like everything I do has to involve me in some way. You know, I love making connections to other people. There's a lot of people I used to work with that I've helped them get a job somewhere else. So I enjoy doing that on a personal level, but more often than not, that ends up circling back. Um, you know, some of the best relationships I have are some of those early people where I'm introducing new technology and trying to work with them together. And I, I jokingly say that some of the best relationships I have are people that they were early in those technologies and, and the technology didn't work. And sometimes, you know, they felt the brunt of that, but if you work hard to get better at it, they appreciate that. So I think it is tough though, especially, you know, I think COVID was a reminder that a lot of people I would see at different industry events and I had to work a lot harder to set up phone calls. And even if there's, even if there's no agenda, just check in on people and, and see how they're doing and, and see if there's anything I can do to help them out with what they're doing. Cause odds are at some point down the line, there'll be something they can help me out with. So it's very much a two-way street and, and it's hard to 
the, the relationships that are hard to maintain are the ones where you feel like it's one way, where someone's only calling you when they need something. Those are harder. Um, I try to check in with people, even if there's no nothing I need, just to, to see how they're doing. And I think, you know, that makes the relationship stronger. But then eventually down the line, there'll probably be a benefit that comes back to you. You just don't know it at the time. It's a very good point. It's something I try to stress with the students is right. Try to make it a two way relationship. It's very clear. Yeah. Like what at times when students are reaching out to uh, to professionals in the industry and, you know, have aspirations to jobs in the industry, then it's very clear that that's what they're looking for. But how can you create mutually beneficial relationships can help you really to build your personal network. And that builds into the last question, which we ask all of our guests as well, is you've been a, senior, a successful senior executive in the sports industry. You've had a variety of different roles. Um, obviously, like I said, a lot of our student, a lot of our audience is students who are looking to get into the sports industry or people who are you know, in the sports industry looking to advance in their career. From your perspective as a senior executive, what are you looking for when you're hiring people or what do you see other senior executives looking for in hiring people um, in, in, in both for junior positions and even more senior positions? And, and what are some of the qualities that you see that are really that can really stand out and help to lead to successful careers in the industry? Yeah, what I, the advice I give to people looking to get in the sports industry is not always what they want to hear, but I give it anyway, which is um, there are times where you can break right into the industry. Like I said, there's a lot of people that get right into sports and that's what they do for their whole career. I'm an example of someone that started in another industry. Now, I didn't do that with the intention, expressed intention to get into sports, but I do think that starting my career in other industries and getting other expertise and skills helped me once I got into the sports space because it gave me a different perspective. So the advice I give people, and this is what, what I look for when I'm hiring someone is not necessarily do they have a, a deep expertise in the industry, but for the role we're hiring, if you're hiring an analytics person, do they have analytics experience? It doesn't have to be in sports. Do they have a passion for that sport and interest, but do they have deep domain knowledge in, like I tell people, go work for an insurance company because their data is going to be much more complex than anything in the sports space. Um, so, so get get functional experience in something you want to do, even if it's not in the sports industry, and then just you know network the heck and out of uh, out of the sports because a lot of times it is around finding the right job at the right time, and they're not always posted like they should be, and some of it's relationship driven. So it's get experience in, in some some industry that's in that functional role you're interested in. And then just look for creative ways to get involved in the sports side because you just never know where they're come about. And some people think a career in sports has to be working for a sports team, but it can be a, so much more than that. I mean, I've never worked for a team and have been working in sports for most of my career now. Um, I think there's a lot of tangential things around it, whether companies or products or sports marketing or events, like there's a lot of things that touch on the sports space, which doesn't mean you're working for a team only because those jobs are few and far between. Right. And sometimes starting in the ticketing area of a, of a team allows you to build relationships and then maybe an analytics group uh, position pops up later on. So the journey is usually not linear. I think my career is a good example of that. Again, you can look you can look in the rearview mirror and it all makes sense. But, you know, at the time, it was just kind of winding roads of getting where it needed to be. Um, and I feel like that that makes it that much more meaningful and powerful at the end. But I think for people cracking in, it's just get a functional experience in the area you're interested in. And, and the sports opportunity will come along at the right time. Like talking about a non-linear trajectory is a good way to end a quantitative-oriented podcast. So I very much appreciate the time. Thank you for all the insights and advice, and thank you for joining the Revenue Above Replacement podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.